Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the unchangeable truth in your word. And as we've just sung, Lord, give us humble hearts now to hear your word, to see the principles in your word, to take them to heart. And as your Holy Spirit teaches us to be changed, and then as we go out from here, to live out that truth. Lord, save us from just having another Sunday with another sermon, with words. Speak to us, we pray. Refresh our hearts. Renew our minds so that you will be glorified. Amen. Well, we're good in good old, we're back in good old Malachi, so I'd like you to, to turn with me to the book of Malachi. And we are going to be starting our reading this morning from Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. This is the word of the Lord to Israel. This is what he says to them. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. This is going to be the first of two sermons looking at this passage, and we're going to concentrate specifically this Sunday on Malachi chapter 2 verse 17 through to the beginning of verse 2. I don't know if you've noticed, I'm sure you have, but if you just look around you, you don't have to look too far and you will see that many, many people have the spirit of discontent and there's a murmuring happening all the time. And you might even have done this. You might even have looked across the fence 
and you see other people around you and how they're doing and you keep on comparing them with your own situation. And you ask this question, how come they've got the big flash cars and they win the lotto and I never seem to win a t-shirt? How come? And there's this discontent in us, you see. What was the attitude of these Israelites in our text as we started reading this morning? What was the attitude towards God and their worship of Him? You see, even though God had shown them unfailing love through the generations, throughout their whole history, and yes, even in their exile, God had shown them unfailing love. What had they done? As we've seen in chapter 1, they brought this amazing God unworthy attitudes. They brought him unworthy sacrifices. Their leaders, the priests, had knowingly done this and allowed the people to bring these sacrifices. And the people, they had themselves brought these sacrifices knowing that they wouldn't be good enough for the Lord. They were second-hand offerings. And they thought that God might not notice. These priests had been misleading the people. They had not just misled them in their teaching of the people, but they'd also, in their own example, not set the example that God had for them. And that resulted in the people breaking covenant with God. And so the men were marrying these women who were foreign women who weren't part of the covenant people. They weren't part of God's people Israel. They were marrying these women. And with these women came idolatry into the nation, right into their homes. And that led to many of these men divorcing their current Jewish wives, or wives of the covenant, and marrying some of these foreigners. And this was all because the priests hadn't brought the leadership they should have before the Lord. And there was sin in the people. And now in verse 17 of chapter 2, we see another sin that the Lord brings before them. He's, he says, these people, you are, you're looking around at the other nations. And you're saying to yourself things like, it looks like God delights in all these foreigners around us because they seem to be enjoying undisturbed prosperity. They seem to have a lot of things. They seem to be having a good life and they don't even know God. And so these people started to actively display the spirit of discontent and murmuring against God because they had lost the faith in God that they had and they weren't trusting in the promises God had made to them. They were saying things like, why is life so hard for us? Now that you've brought us back from exile, Lord, why isn't life going a bit easier for us? Maybe we should start taking a few shortcuts with those principles that you brought before us. Those principles you've told us to live by. Let's just shortcut them. Maybe God is okay with evil. You see that first lie? But they didn't stop there. Where's this promised Messiah? Why hasn't he come yet? This one is supposed to deliver us and to judge these nations and the oppressors around us, our evil neighbors. Where is he? Are we not his people? Why do we have to go through hardship, God? 
Why do our enemies have it so good? Where is the God of justice? You might even have asked that question yourself. When stuff's happened to you, you might see some of what's happening on TV when judges give sentences which really do not fit the crime. And you say, where is the God of justice? You see, these people were doubting God's promises and they were proclaiming and believing an untruth. They come up with a lie and they were starting to believe their own lie. And so discontent and murmuring was growing in the nation. Now, they weren't new to discontent and murmuring, were they? That kind of went with the nation of Israel right from the beginning. Remember when they were walking through with the Lord through the, the, the desert, the wilderness, and they didn't have water. And they came to a well full of water, but it was bitter. And so they called it Mara. And they actually called it Mara out of rebelliousness. And what did God do for them? Did he allow them to die there in the wilderness? No. He took that water and he made it sweet for them. And they drank of it and they experienced God's goodness. And then the continual murmuring and, Lord, we want to go back to Egypt. We had it so good with that food and the lifestyle in Egypt. Little did they remember the slavery, but we had it good, Lord. And then what does God do? He doesn't make them perish in the wilderness. He provides bread from heaven and the manna comes to them. And then when Moses went up the mountain, up Mount Sinai, to receive those commandments from the Lord, and the people were left there for a few days, what did they do? Ah, oh, Moses has forgotten us. God has forgotten us here down at the bottom of the mountain. And so what did they do? They built themselves a calf, a golden calf, and they started worshipping this calf. You see, it's all the same thing here. Discontent, murmuring. And when they murmured against God again, he made poisonous snakes come among them and start killing the people. God, through Moses, raised up a bronze serpent and all those who worshipped this bronze serpent and knew that they were looking up to the Lord and he would bring relief, they were the ones who were saved. You see, discontented murmuring was the very reason they had gone into exile in the first place. And here they are back from exile and back to the old habits, murmuring discontent. And so God says to them, you weary me with your words. In other words, enough. You want the God of justice, says the Lord, I will bring him to you. And he uses a name here when he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, behold, I am going to send. That I is a specific word, Adonai. It's a specific name for God that he uses there, which means the covenant-keeping God of Israel. I, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, not like you, I will bring my messenger to you. I will bring him. I'm sending him, the promised Messiah. I am sending him. But you are not yet ready to meet him, he says in verse 2. And therefore I will show you mercy once again. I will send my messenger. Now here he's not talking about the Messiah. He's talking about one who will come before the Messiah. One who will prepare the way. It's a military term there. It was to clear the way before an army. What did they do to prepare for an army to come? They actually built roads, the Romans did. They sent heralds into the villages to say prepare. 
An invading army has come. There's nothing you can do about it, but prepare for them. They prepared the way. I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way. And who was that messenger? John the Baptist. They also called him Elijah the prophet. He will warn. He will proclaim my coming. And he will prepare the way by preaching about what? Making roads? Getting good buildings going? Polishing up the silverware? No. He will preach about ungodliness. He will preach about the taking away of enmity, of a hatred with God. About repentance, the need for conversion of sinners. He will preach about the imminent arrival of the kingdom of God. Prepare the way for the Lord. That's what he'll preach. And then, when he's come and prepared the way, says God Almighty, then the Lord will suddenly come to his temple, says our text. Almighty, the Lord of hosts in human form, will meet with mankind. God Almighty, meeting with his creation, that sin-filled and fallen man. What a profound truth. But they weren't ready for their truth yet. And this Messiah whom you seek, when you say, where is the God of justice? That Messiah, the long-awaited one, the one who was promised, he will come, says Adonai. But he will suddenly come. And this is where you need to take notes. You see, he's just not going to appear on the scene. He will suddenly come. And whenever the Bible speaks, uses that term of suddenly come, it speaks about judgment for the wicked and salvation for those who are godly. Always just those two camps. He will suddenly come to bring judgment and salvation. And mankind won't be ready for him. And then our text says, I will bring my messenger of the covenant. Now please keep with me here. This is not John the Baptist. This messenger of the covenant is the Messiah that he's speaking about. So get that clear when you read that passage. So this messenger of the covenant, the one who was promised by the old covenant, says God, that covenant which said that God would be in the midst of his people, that he would bring blessing and he would bring punishment, that God, he will come to you in the form of my son. But at the same time, he is going to embody the new covenant which I am bringing to you. And he himself will become that covenant with mankind. You see, here was a meeting of the old and the new covenants. This Messiah who would come would embody both God's promises in the Old Testament and his promises until eternity comes again to people, mankind, in the new covenant. Jesus Christ would fulfill that. And this one in whom you delight, this one who you've been taught about since your childhood, says the Lord, this one whom your prophets have foretold, this one who your Great-great-grandfather David wrote about in the Psalms, this promised and expected Messiah, he will come. Yes, your priests have not been faithful. They have not been faithfully bringing you this message, but he will come because he will be the final priest. He will be the one who will bring you my message perfectly. He will bring my covenant message to you in himself. He will both be my message and my covenant. You get that? Jesus will be the message and the covenant. And that is why verse 2 starts with what it says. 
it says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Jesus is not your homeboy, as I've seen on DVDs. When Jesus walks in and he appears, you will be flat on your face. You won't say, hi bro. Who can stand when he appears? Isaiah said it like this. Listen to this. Isaiah 33 verse 14. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with a consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? You see, God is continual holiness. He is pure holiness. What man can stand before God? And when Jesus appeared among men, as he did 2,000 plus years ago, as the God-man, men did not recognize him for who he really was. This was the eternal and almighty God in human flesh. And men just saw him as just another little baby. And you know what? Today, they still see him, if they do recognize Jesus, as just another little baby at Christmas time. Those people that saw the Messiah when he came in the New Testament, they saw glimpses of his godness. They saw when he healed the sick. They saw when he raised the dead. They saw when he forgave sinners, when he cast demons into the abyss. Now, this was not normal. This was God in human flesh at work. When he fed thousands from five loaves and two fish, the God-man at work. The religious leaders and the Pharisees experienced just a small taste of the judgment that this God-man would bring when he whipped them out of the temple. They only saw a small smattering of what he would do. When he called them hypocrites, when he called them whitewashed sepulchres or tombstones, that was just a small amount of his judgment to them. The Jews who were interacting with Jesus every day when he claimed to be God himself, would not accept God-man's message. They wouldn't accept it. Rather, they wanted to stone him. And Jesus' disciples, those who were closest to Jesus, they saw glimpses of who he really was when he walked on the water. Man, that was a mighty glimpse. He walked on the water. He calmed the natural elements, the wind and the waves. He physically died. Many had done that. But he rose again on the third day and he appeared to them. Now that hadn't been done before. And then they even heard God Almighty proclaiming in a voice that they could hear, This is my beloved Son. Now I've never heard God's voice in such thundering tones. I don't know if you have. But they did. When Jesus was baptized, God's voice was heard. This is my son. And when Jesus was transfigured before their very eyes, they heard God's voice saying, this is my son. And yet they didn't fully get it, did they? They didn't recognize him fully as the Messiah. And the sad thing is that it was only after Jesus' crucifixion that some came to see who he really was. A Gentile came to see who this really was. The Roman centurion said at the cross, truly, this was who? The Son of God. 
He got it, a Gentile. A woman in the Bible, those who were looked down upon in those times, Mary Magdalene, she understood who he was. I have seen who? I have seen the Lord. She knew. And then a murderer, Saul, or later called Paul, he saw who this really was. Jesus on the road of Damascus, that bright light shining on him. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you persecute. He met with the living Jesus. And so our text says, who can stand when he appears? You see, this nation of Israel, with their murmurings and their grumbling, in its existing moral condition, weren't ready for the coming of this one who was spoken about, the true Messiah. They weren't prepared to receive him. They weren't able to stand before him at all. They had no grounds for murmuring. They should rather have murmured against their own sin. They should rather have murmured against their own estrangement from this God who loved them with an unending love. It was only when the way was prepared and when God's time was right would he send that Messiah. Not when they moaned about it. You see, they didn't recognize this Messiah when he first appeared. In the New Testament, they didn't recognize when he appeared. Today, people still don't recognize that the Messiah has come. But there will come a day when every single person living and all those raised up will recognize him, the Messiah, for who he is when he returns again. Believers and unbelievers. You see, for us as believers, it will be the greatest moment of our very existence. I can't wait for that day. I hope I'm alive when it happens, but it's not going to make a difference because I'll come alive. But when Christ appears, it will be the greatest moment of my existence. And for unbelievers, it will be the most terrifying moment of their existence. The Bible says they will throw rocks on top of themselves to try and hide. And the question that we are coming to this morning is, are you ready for this Messiah? If you're a believer here today and if you're an unbeliever here today, are you ready for this Messiah? Matthew 4.12 says this, and we read it earlier this morning. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's ready for the harvest. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, believers, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, unbelievers. God is coming. He said he will. And so as a believer this morning, I want to challenge you first. Every single one of you sits here and you say you're a believer. Are you wearying God as this nation was? Are you wearying God? You say, but how do we weary God? Exactly what Israel was saying. Well, are you so caught up with this world? Are you so caught up with the affairs of this world that that is all you are seeing? You are seeing unbelievers around you going about their business, undisturbed, and yes, even flourishing. And you look across that fence and you compare them with your own situation and man, does the grass look green for them? And you're in a near desert. And it seems as if God's dealings and your expectations are just so different. You as parents, are you always struggling with not just your own spiritual life, 
but maybe even struggling with finances daily, week in, week out, month in, month out, finances are there. And those family issues, if you've got teenagers and kids in the house, you'll know what I'm talking about. Continually, they never seem to stop fighting. There's always something happening in the house. I see some are shaking their heads. I don't believe it. Are you constantly battling with children who want what the unbelieving families around you have? Who say, but mum, look at how they bring up their children. How come we don't do that? And there's a murmuring in your home. Christian teenagers, if you call yourself, and I said deliberately, a Christian teenager, not just teenagers, because some of you here aren't believers yet. Christian teenagers, you may be under constant pressure at school or at uni from unbelieving friends to stop being such, I'll use the word you know, to stop being such a dork and to, and to just get a life with them and start doing things with them. Questionable activities I'm speaking about. And to stop being so strict about your beliefs. You get that pressure? I know at school I did. And for any of us sitting here today, you and I, we may even be tempted to give up the uphill battle, the uphill struggle of everyday Christian living and to stop doing our God-given task. We may be tempted to do so and tempted to linger longer in the world to start gathering in the world. Or maybe even, and this is worse, to start compromising on your Christian stand on moral issues and the way you think about things. That's how we start seeing that there's a problem in us. Don't believe that lie, says our text this morning. God does mind evil. In other words, he hates evil. You see, God has not changed, and that's why I deliberately read verse 6 as well. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. That's God's mercy at work. But does he still hate evil? Of course he hates evil. He's a 100% holy. His holiness hasn't changed at all. He still calls you and I to be holy as I am holy, says God in Leviticus 11.44. And so when you look around, you don't start questioning God and his justice. And when you see, when you see people seemingly getting away with murder, and sometimes, yes, literally, you may even be ridiculed by family, by people at work, by people in the street that you come across when you're trying to present a gospel message to them. You may even be ridiculed. Yes, you may even be hated by people because you're a believer. But Jesus has warned you that it will happen. And that doesn't diminish the fact that he is still a God of justice. Just because it's happening to you doesn't mean God has changed. That is a warning and actually a confirmation and a sign that Jesus is coming again. Just like he said, and I want to read you this, Matthew chapter 24. Turn with me, if you would, to this. Do you want to know what's going to happen in future? Read the book of Matthew. It's spelt out there for us. Look at the signs of the times. And no, don't misinterpret the signs of the times. Look at what Scripture says will happen. And it's mostly in a spiritual arena that it will happen. Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 to 13. This is what Jesus himself says. And yes, he was speaking to his disciples, but look at the principles. 
Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away. There's a warning. Many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. You see, just as Jesus suddenly came to this earth, as God's covenant personified in the Messiah, He will reappear. And all men everywhere, says Scripture, will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and not just glory, and great glory, says Matthew 24:30. And He said that He's coming, and with Him comes His final justice for all men. For all men past, for all men living today, and for all men who will live until Christ comes. He will do justice. Why? Because all men will stand before him, believers and unbelievers, dead and living, and they will face the justice of God. Take God at his word, believe him, and then live our lives before him in their truth. And so the question I ask, and I'm still with you believers today, are you ready for the Son of Man to come? Because it says in Matthew 24, the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. It's not going to fit into your plans. You still want to confess before the Lord? Do it today because he might come before you have. It's not going to fit into your plans. He will come when men do not think he is coming. Unexpectedly. It's one of those things you haven't got control of. You might have control of a lot of other things but not of when he comes again. And so how are we to live before this God in the light of this truth? Let's live lives that are expectant of his coming. Let's look forward to his coming. He can come at any time. And how is that going to show in me? By my attitude towards the sin in me. You see, sin matters to God. There's that statement of truth coming out again. Sin matters to God. And so make short work of sin in your life. Deal harshly with it. John Piper says, make war on your sin in your life. Confess your sin before Jesus, your great high priest, and plead for his forgiveness. Not once a week, daily, minute by minute, plead for his forgiveness. Don't allow sin to stay in your life and to grow in you. It will have harsh consequences. The old story about little leopards become big leopards and big leopards kill. That is what sin does. It grows and kills. Deal with sin. Your Savior, if you're a believer here today, your Savior, and here's the truth, and your Defender is coming for you. But how will He find you and I? And then look to God for justice. By staying faithful, how do we look to God for justice? By looking at my own life. And by looking at my own walk before him and my own attitudes before him, both towards God and towards other people, and by dealing as I should be dealing with other people to glorify God. 
That is how I look to God for justice. The rest is up to him. Look forward to that day when he will appear. And then, and here's the comfort, the struggle with this world and the struggle with your daily sin will be over. It will come to an end when Christ comes. And we look forward to that day. I do, daily. And the last word I want to bring is to you who might be sitting here today and you do not know this Jesus Christ who we're speaking about. If you're an unbeliever here today, and teenagers, I want you to listen. Don't just think you're a Christian because you've said you're a Christian. Or because you do what Christians do. Are you a believer? Do you know Jesus Christ personally? Are you in a living relationship with him? If not, you're an unbeliever. Jesus has once again been sending out his messengers into the world. When Jesus went up into the heavens, he did not just leave us and then said, I'm coming back. That's it. See you again. He didn't do that. Who did he leave behind? He left behind messengers. He left behind firstly his apostles. Those men who proclaimed the truth powerfully and thousands were converted. He left behind the early church to show us how we are to live our Christian lives, to set the example for us. He left behind us in history many, many men and women of God who've been proclaiming God's word and his truth and his gospel message faithfully year in, year out. Right here till today, God has left person here to proclaim the word to you. You will have no excuses. God's made his message available to you as an unbeliever through Christians around you, those ones that you turn away from, even when they're presenting the message to you in the street. He's presented his gospel to you in his creation. You just need to look around you. God speaks to you through His what he's made. He's left you his message on TV, those channels that you quickly flick away from when that preacher comes up. He's left you his message on radio broadcasts when you quickly change to another channel. He's left you his message on DVDs, on internet downloads, on YouTube, on Facebook comments, on Twitter tweets. But the big question is, what is your response been? What is your response been? Because one day you too will stand before this Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. And you will stand there for justice. And you will stand there with no excuse. And this is the terrifying thought for me if you're an unbeliever. You won't have an excuse, but you won't have anyone to defend you either. You will have no defense against Almighty God. And and that is why I want to plead with you this morning. As a pastor of this church, and I might not even know you. You might be visiting here for the first time. You might have been coming here for many years. I want to plead with you. Bow your proud knee before Jesus Christ today as Lord of your life. Bow that knee and confess to him that you're a poor, unworthy sinner who is lost without his intervention in your life and deserving of his judgment, which is coming to you. And ask him to forgive you of your hard-heartedness and to take out that heart of stone and to put into you a heart which will respond to him a heart that has been made new by him, so that when you look at God, you will make him the center of your life, and he will take over your life, and he will guide you in your life, and when he comes again, you too will call him the blessed one, 
you too will welcome that day. It isn't going to be a day of wrath and a terrible day for you. You see, instead of having an all-knowing judge on that day, you can have an all-powerful Savior. Which one do you want? I want the all-powerful Savior. I don't want the all-knowing judge judging me. But that is up to you today. You've heard the message. The way has been prepared. God is coming again through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you be ready? Says God's Word today. Revelation 3.20 describes this. Look at Jesus saying to you today. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. That is God's promise to you today. But you know, God isn't pleading with you and saying, please choose me. That's not what this passage is about. He is demanding you to be obedient and to repent. That is the Lord of hosts saying, repent and believe. It is a command form when he says, I, I am knocking on that door. You open. Not please open. You get the difference? Don't turn your back on this message this morning. The way has been cleared for Christ to come again. He can come at any time. Are you ready? Don't weary the Lord. An old hymn said it this way. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There is an answer. There's a door that is open and you may go in. Christ opened that door to God. At Calvary's cross, that's where you begin when you come as a sinner with a bowed knee to Jesus. God's word has been proclaimed. You will stand with no excuse. And as believers, let's look forward to that day. Every morning, is this the day that Christ is going to come? And then let's live our lives in that reality. It will make a massive difference to the way we live. Let's pray. Lord our God, sometimes in your word, you give us those promises, which are those feel-good promises. And sometimes in your word, Lord, you give us those warnings, which make us really evaluate where we stand with you. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can have both. That we know, Lord Jesus Christ, you have promised that when we least expect you, you will come. And the way has been cleared. And we look forward to that day, Lord. Because just that thought helps us to get through our struggles every day. But Lord, help us to live our lives in reality, knowing that you are coming soon. Help us to set our priorities as believers because you are coming soon. Help us to spend our finances and our time in such a way that it shows that you are coming again soon. So thank you for that comfort, Lord. But Lord, thank you too for the warning that we are to assess our own lives and we are to make sure that we belong to you. And we have to ask ourselves, am I in that living relationship with Lord, with, with you, Lord? Is it a vibrant relationship? Or is there sin in my life that I need to deal with? And Lord, I plead for any here today 
that are not believers because the only prayer that you will hear from them is not a prayer of help. It is a prayer of, Lord, give me a new heart. That is the only prayer you hear from an unbeliever. And Lord, I pray if there are any here today, and there will be, that they will do business with you today and bow their proud knees before you and seek for forgiveness and ask for help so that they too can be saved and see you as their Savior, their all-powerful Savior. Lord, thank you for this word today. Help us as we go from this place to live it out in our lives and not to forget this, but to live out this week knowing you are coming. Amen.